For disclaimer, this lost episode of Scholar T was recorded in early 2020 before the COVID-19 pandemic. We welcome you back and please enjoy. Hello, Dr. Patterson Stevens. How are you? Oh, you know, I'm I'm here. I'm present. <laughs> <laughs> the people have missed you. <laughs> and they've missed you too. <laughs> Feeling a little run over, you know, by mm-hmm. 18-wheeler, but... What's but, making um, you feel run over? Oh, um, it's been a lot. Uh, this last year has has really done number on me and, and really had some high, high, high highs and some pretty low lows. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, well, I want to start, you know, a lot of folks know that uh, we just had another baby, um, Mm -hmm. little Kingsley. Kingsley looks like a king. He does. Um, Ebony Zamani Gallagher, she, we ran to each other in Target not too long ago. She said he looks like old money. Uh, um, yeah, he's, he's eight months now and Kennedy is 13 and her own woman. It's just, it's amazing. Um, some folks know we moved, so we picked up our whole entire family and, uh, moved across the country. Um, and that's had some really good, uh, uh that's, that's, that's brought some really good things to our lives, right? Like Kennedy, is a girl of color. She, for once in a really long time, isn't the only girl of color in her class and in her grade even. Um, so she sticks out for other reasons, you know, her beauty, her talent, her stature um, at school, but it's not because she's a person of color. And I'm already seeing like a tremendous, um, I guess, big heavy sigh of relief coming to her mm-hmm. as a result. Um, so that's been good. Um, you know, folks are getting married. But there's also been a lot of passing in our lives lately and um you know i'm just trying to wrap my mind around that a little bit more i remember we spoke about this a while ago like um i I still have an interest in being a death doula and uh it's times like these when people are experiencing transition in their in their families um, and in their lives that i'm like uh maybe i should do this maybe i should consider this because you know it it impacts me but but i just i process it just very differently you know um so high highs but you know low lows and um you know still trying to uh, find a rhythm i i was on it before you know i i had a pretty good schedule going for me and now uh, this baby has just lit everything on fire <laughs> yeah it's like it's a it's a new normal right like yeah. And then that new normal is constantly changing and you have to readjust. <laughs> yeah. And he's still, you know, I co-sleep with my babies because I like to sleep. Um, but, you know, really trying hard this time um, to maintain my milk supply and, you know, being an executive level administrator while also being cognizant of the fact that you're nursing is a whole different dynamic than when I was a hall director with Kennedy. So, um, you know, like, Maybe I wasn't sleeping so much when Kennedy was a baby. I really can't remember. It's been a while. Uh, but my level of responsibility was different. 
my schedule was completely different. I could sleep in because I would work until nine, ten o'clock in my office, you know, when I was a complex director and um, that's not the expectation anymore. So, so I, I think the most, the thing that's had the, the biggest impact on me has been um, the sleep and the inability to have solid, good sleep in a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's good to hear your voice. I get to yeah. see your face. Um, yeah. So um, I miss you, and I miss just being on the another side of the state from you. Um, yeah. Yeah. I miss seeing you too. Although we got to see each other in DC. We did. We did. Uh, shout fun. out to Charlotte for the wedding turn up, the, That's the brunch right. wedding. That's um, right. Yeah. And um, what's her face? The the mighty Delta. <laughs> Watch the she yard. Awesome. The, the watch the yard famous Delta with the bars. We have to get her. <laughs> Y'all, Charlotte, you need to call in one day and talk to these people about what we're talking about. Um, this woman, she she kind of reminded me of Big Frida. She in the way that she uh, her flow. Um, but she was out there like giving the people chants and and directions and and she just had a flow and she was she wasn't just rapping like she. She's, <laughs> she's broadcasting and people were it was at the wedding though <laughs> right Have, she had the she had bars for the delta stroll They're, they are that's strolling right. to her bars okay <laughs> that's right that's right love it how have you love been it. what have you been up to uh you know on this uh tenure grind tenure hustle uh trying to not make not let them steal my joy you know that has been the past 18 months is, um, get, you know, getting transitioned in a new institution, new location, new, new uh, region of the country. I have never lived um, substantially. So, no, it's good. I'm, I'm also in a, I'm in a very good place. I'm very pleased with my transition and um, where I am and with the students and the work I get to do and my colleagues and no complaints here. It's just, you know, transitions of life. You're in a really good place, spiritually, personally, but... Really, I, I've always enjoyed my time in Tallahassee. You, you used to always say that. Like, I, when I used to see you in St. Louis, she'd be like, oh, I love Tallahassee. I'm like, girl, what is that I love about some Tallahassee? You know, that's, <laughs> that's when nobody knew anything about Tallahassee but some T-Pain. Um, <laughs> but, but you have always said that. You have always said that, you know, and I, and I feel that, like, you know, there's moments that I'm like, okay, I, I could be other places in the world. I could be in a bigger city spending more money doing other things okay right now with the physical location of where I am and, and the place I am. It's all about the people and there's some really good people there. I, I think I'm finding um, them. Some folks know uh, I also have been successful in acquiring a position with the ACPA Executive Directorate. Yes, congratulations. Shout out yeah. to you. So excited. Um, and I'm really excited. Board. The, right. Everyone on the governing board just seems to be amazing. I'm excited to be able to work with John just selfishly again. Um, yes. So I Shout think out to a friend, loyal <laughs> listener, Dr. Jonathan huh? McGeldry. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just, it's going to be great. No, I'm, re I'm really excited about the, the new energy, the different perspectives um, that, that that's going to come to the organization, to the ACPA, moving the agenda forward, but also new ideas of how to advance some of the work that's happening not only at that organization level, but you know, people going back to their campuses. I'm so excited for the for the governing board and for you all and the work you're gonna do. Yeah, me too. It feels like it's a 
a moment um, where we're, we're more solvent, you know, more stable um, and willing and able to be able to really push some hard, hard concepts and, and ideas forward. It seems like a lot of people are motivated to bring us on to the next step. So it's going to be a good time. Uh, we, uh, first of all, I want to say that we hear you. We see y'all. If you are listening, um, procrastinating, writing that paper, if you're driving home from work, you have a long commute, you like you you texting myself or Shauna like where is my scholar tea? We got them all. We heard y'all, um, but hopefully you and we thank you all for your patience. Um, but please know that life has happened, um, mm-hmm. and we're excited that um, people have uh, used our podcast as a space, but also a space for inspiration. And people have gone out and um, you know, carved out wonderful niches of their own in the podcasting space around higher education and identity. Um, and we are just grateful to continue to do this and bring y'all season and We're two. really excited by some of the interviews that we'll be hosting this season. Um, so uh, we hope that you continue to follow us in this journey and continue to give us uh, the feedback that you've been um, offering. We've actually been using it when we can. Um, we've heard some really good ideas and and we're grateful for the enthusiasm around this project. Absolutely. So should we start off our episode with all of the tea? Um, you know, there's so much happening in the in the wonderful world. Uh, but for now, we haven't necessarily switched up um, anything. You're still going to get your scholar of the week. We still have our hot topic, you know, spilling the tea. So much mess going on in the world. Um, give, leaving you with some inspiration and the jokes of the week um, and letting you know what's problematic. Um, so should we get into it? So first, we'd like to recognize our Scholar of the Week. Nikki Finney was born in Conway, South Carolina and raised in Sumter. She, lives, she left South Carolina after high school with her eyes and heart set on becoming a writer. After living and studying primarily in the South, Talladega College in Alabama and Atlanta University in Georgia, she moved to Oakland, California for several years. She was invited to teach in the early 90s at the University of Kentucky. For 21 years, she taught poetry and fiction in Lexington. In 2013, she became Professor Emeritus at the University of Kentucky and accepted the John H. Bennett Jr. Chair in Creative Writing Letters position at the University of South Carolina. She has a joint appointment in the Department of English Language and Literature and the African American Studies Program. African American History the history of America, as well as topics in popular culture, gender, sexuality, art, and race, as well as social justice, are at the core of her work. Finney has authored five books on wings made of gauze, rice, the world is round, and head off and split, which was awarded the 2011 National Book Award for Poetry. She also authored Heartwood, a book of short prose, and edited The Ringing Ear, Black Poets Lean South, which is an anthology of African-American poets writing about their Southern connections. The new decade is here, and so is Nikki's new book. Love Child's Hotbed of Occasional Poetry, publication date April 15, 2020, is her first poetry collection since the winning of the National Book Award in 2011. In addition to poems, there are hotbeds, a horticulture term introducing her readers to her journals, the place where most of her poems have always found their calcium and strong knees. There are also artifacts, images, and photographs that assist the words in composing how the poet's poet life came to be. 
Over the last 30 years, each and every Nikki Finney book has always been wonderfully different, but this long-awaited new minglement of word and image crafts a new kind of American poetry. And so please, if you haven't already heard of Nikki Finney's tremendous work, we encourage you to engage in her books and maybe even go out there and buy a Love Child's Hotbed uh, in 2020. Okay, the incident at Ball State University, um, and I'm still trying to get the, the facts together, but from what I understood following the young man's tweet who uh, was the victim of his professor of having the police called on him, is he was sitting in class um, with his laptop, and I think the class might have assigned seats or something, and the professor wanted him to move, and campus police was called into the classroom to either remove the young man or um, take control of the classroom. Um, and then some of his classmates, I watched some of the video that some of his classmates posted as well. And if I remember correctly, that's obviously not the first incident. I think at last academic year, there was a black woman um, who had the police called on her and she was sitting in class weaponizing, right? And there's something unique about how the police are used against black and brown bodies in the classroom. You rarely, I have not heard, y'all can correct me if I'm wrong, I have yet to hear of a story where someone who was uh, of majority uh, identity being held to the same kind of standard and having the police called on them because of their behavior in the classroom, um, if it wasn't already something that was egregiously violent, for example, right? Um, I, I have yet to hear a story where someone is sitting there with their feet on the chair, for example, and the police were called, or standing in the aisle of a large lecture, lecture hall and the police are being called, or sitting in uh, what is supposed to be an assigned seat, although I don't know where they do that at <laughs> in the college setting, um, using uh, the police to try to move bodies out of a place of learning um that they're paying to be in that are paying to be there um I, I just have not heard of that happening for anyone who was not black or brown yeah and and as a faculty member yeah as a faculty member that sits in a college of education that sits in faculty meetings the other part of me about these situations is the is the number of of institutions or faculty that feel like it can't happen at their institution. But every day, our students of color are having to continuously navigate the, the racial battle fatigue, having to continue to navigate racial microaggressions, having to continue navigate the explicit racism in the syllabus, in the curriculum, in the discussion of their classmates and of their professor on whatever given topic, from math and science to the humanities and, and to whatever else, right? Um, but no, that's that happened there. That would never happen here, right? That mentality, I think, is just as as problematic. And I, I noticed that some folks, uh, folks of color, seemingly uh, responding and saying, I, I saw one person in particular saying, you know, I know this person. I know they're not racist. And, I saw that. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not trying to dismiss what that person was saying or invalidate their experience with that person, but um, I. I need people to understand the, the emphasis on systemic racism and systemic acts and the utilization of the state against people of color mm -hmm. um, as a, a form of systemic racism. And um, the exceptional Negro uh, experience is maybe what is being applied to you. You know, <laughs> like uh, you, you might not be experiencing those things from that person, 
um, maybe because they see you as exceptional or different than um, other folks, but also maybe you you might not be as um, in tune to what some of those things mean um, or, or have not developed yet the experience or the ability to utilize the understandings of pattern behavior to really lift up some of the issues that might be underlying some of that person's experiences but or um, the dissonance that has to be occurring in the situation of like, you don't hear yourself sounding like, Oh, but they have a black friend. Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's exactly what that argument is based in. Yeah. Maybe that wasn't the best tweet to be sending out in response <laughs> to this person's behavior. Right? Like uh, there, I think maybe dismantling some of that behavior and understanding why, um, someone calling the police on a student who just isn't doing exactly what they're being told because they're not in their, they're not staying or remaining in their quote unquote place um, is an act of violence, is an act of racism and could potentially harm that student. They could either be injured or that, or they could be killed. And you not understanding that lets me understand and know where you, where you stand in, Mm -hmm. in reality that we are currently living in. I bought my daughter a sweatshirt that says, stop calling the police on black people. I saw that on Instagram. <laughs> and she's sporting it, right? Uh, shout out to Alidra Allen. Y'all can go see uh, all of those works at piemovement.org. Anyway, um, I, I purchased it because I want my daughter to understand, you know, uh, that police as, a, as, as individuals aren't inherently bad, you know, like, um, that's not necessarily the issue. The issue is there's some group think mentality out there. There's actually um, some tactics that are, are being used within police forces to not just subdue people of color, but actually legitimately harm them. They take, they ratchet up their behavior depending on what they think they're seeing. But when you criminalize someone's skin color and you criminalize the way that they might appear, I need you to understand why that is bad. And I need folks that tend to have that propensity to call the police on us, understand that too. Um, but it is just shameful. It, it's a, a, a place of learning. And, and we're already in a situation where folks feel like they don't belong there. So for you to have them removed from their class by, by the police, you know, you, you are further implicating, you're furthering that, that ideology that people of color don't belong on campus. And I think that goes beyond just training, right? Yep. Like, it's not just a bias training at this point. Like, there's something else that needs we're be- to be done. We're beyond that, right? Like, we're beyond, mm-hmm. we're beyond that at this point. So we would love to hear you all um, in your reactions to, to, the, to the bull crap that you read or saw um, in relation to that, and even thinking more critically about the policing of, of Black bodies in higher education on higher education campuses um, in an institution. All right, all right, all right. Scholar T, we are welcoming Dr. Michelle Espino. Is it Lyra? Mm-hmm. To Scholar T, welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome. Um, we are so excited to have you. We have been wanting to have you for some time now, and <laughs> we are excited that you are kicking off season two of Scholar T. Um, and to thank you for your time, your energy, your support of the podcast. Um, Michelle, would you tell the people a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. Well, 
Hola everyone. Hola mi gente. This is Michelle Espino Lira. I am an associate professor at the University of Maryland College Park. I am in specifically in the student affairs concentration here. It is hard to believe, but I've been here eight years. Um, earned tenure here and uh, trying to live my best life. Snaps for the earning tenure there. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, has, it was a journey because I have been a faculty member for 10 years. So before I um, came to the University of Maryland, I was at the University of Georgia in the College Student Affairs Administration Program. So shout out to Casasters out there. Um, and I was there for four years. And so uh, it took me a while to earn tenure, but it, it was a wonderful feeling when it happened. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And we didn't talk about this before, but I would love to hear, because I know there's a lot of us junior faculty that sometimes... Early career. Early career. Early career. Excuse me. <laughs> Not junior. Ah. <laughs> early career. You told me that last time we chatted. I told you. Uh, <laughs> I told you. <laughs> um, we get messages that we shouldn't be moving around or, um, you know, where you start mm -hmm. is where you should be trying to earn tenure. And some of those messages are not doing our health very well, mm -hmm. um, being in places. So I'm just interested in how you navigated, you know, that and getting to, to a place where you earn tenure and you're at a place where you're, where you are happy, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think one of the, the challenges of being an academic is that you can't be, you know, too selective about where you decide to be a faculty member. Um, you know, sometimes it's important to just get in the door and then find your way around. And I just, for me, um, I was very excited about going to the University of Georgia. Um, it was a storied program. It had a lot of opportunity. Um, and, you know, to be part of you know, such a well-known and well-regarded program. I, I just, I was excited about it. Um, and I, I think for me, I mean, I was there for four years and I had every intention of uh, continuing on towards tenure. And um, I think it's just opportunities opened up. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, there's no way that I can't apply to the University of Maryland. Um which is also another well-regarded program. And, and I think there were some aspects of this. So, you know, I mean, you choose your first faculty position and it is, you know, it's going to be where it is, you know, wherever that may be around the country. Um, and, you know, for me, Athens, Georgia is a wonderful town. It is a very good place for college students. It's a wonderful place if you have a family, a good mm -hmm. place to, to raise a family. But if you are a singleton in your 30s, uh, it's not the best place. And, you know, I had friends who were living in Atlanta who would make the like hour and a half, two hour drive. And I was like, I don't want to do that. Like I, I like being kind of close to campus and being able to drive in and out. And so, you know, it was just kind of the quality of life opportunities and you know, I think also just, I didn't realize how much the level of stress I was enduring. I was the only faculty of color in the program and I was only Latina. There were very few, even in the college of ed, mm -hmm. um, that I knew. And it, it just was very stressful. I didn't realize how much it would be. And actually in my first year I was diagnosed with breast cancer, um, mm -hmm. during that time. And it was, pretty shocking. Actually, I'm c coming up to my cancerversary 
uh, in a few weeks. And so thank you. It's like, it's been, it's now 11 years. Oh my gosh. uh, Since my diagnosis. Um, So it's been my entire faculty career. I've been a survivor and, um, and I, you know, my first year as a faculty, I mean, I, you know, it was so shocking to me. It was shocking to everybody because it's not something that's in my family. Although I do have the gene that causes breast cancer that we found out later on. Um, And I just, I mean, it it was just such a shock and to tell my colleagues, you know, like here they, they just brought on someone who's been here only six months and then now she's been diagnosed. And it was, um, I, I was so blessed. I really was. I, everybody in the community gathered around to support me and that meant a lot, you know? Mm -hmm. And so so like, it, you know, just trying to survive being a faculty member is one thing. Then you're trying to survive it with a cancer diagnosis and, you know, didn't qualify for Family Med- Medical Leave Act because um, I was only there for less than a year. I mean, the, all these things and just, and you know, my family was all the way in Texas. Um, and so like, it was those kinds of things that I I just wanted to like survive. And then once you know, I mean, it was a good year of treatment, um, full on treatment. And then finally, I kind of started to see the, you know, daylight. And then I was like, okay, can I really keep continuing to be a faculty member? The Mm -hmm. rigors of it, the stress of it. Um, But it gave me so much perspective that I, I just, I was like, I'm going to write what I want to write about. I'm going to, you know, I don't, you know, because everybody's like also, you know, all these like different stories, these narratives that we get about what you can write about before you get tenure, uh, you know, that you really can't shoot for the top tier. And even if you do, you're not going to make it. I mean, like all these like, you know, stories. And I was just like, I'm going to write what I want to write about. And I'm going to do it the way that I want to, because I don't. I don't have any other way to do this. Mm-hmm. This is just the only, like, I'm just going to be me because I know what it was to like be hanging on the very edge of life. And uh, I was like, um, you know, it just really changed the way I thought about this work. You better give us a testimony. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it actually kind of has me thinking about how um, we don't often honor the trauma that we carry you know, in the day to day. Uh, And I think even when we're seeing each other at uh, conventions or um, during these week long writing retreats that we have with our friends, you know, in the Netherlands, um, (laughs) (laughs) right? Like uh, what, and thinking about all that and and from your own personal experiences, um, what has support and like holding looked like for you, especially within the academy? What ways have you maybe change that kind of perspective on what support could look like for others in the academy? Mm. You know, I mean, I think, you know, way back, you know, even in my doctoral program, I mean, the sister scholars were the crew that, I mean, they're my writer dice, you know, and, um, and I think, you know, Judy Kiyama, you know, I always talk about, um, Cause she was the one who actually encouraged me to go to the doctor. Like I wasn't, you know, mm. 
even thinking, I was like, I don't, this is weird. I feel weird. And she was like, you need to go to the doctor, please. And then that's when it all kind of opened up. And I, Hmm. and I often tell her, I'm like, you helped to save my life, you know? And then to have, you know, Liliana Garces and Susana Munoz who were with me through that whole process, who I could call at any time, you know, in sorrow and, you know, I, I at one point ran away from Georgia <laughs> just to take a vacation and go see Judy. And uh, when Judy was at the University of Rochester and, you know, I mean, it just to have people who you could count on um, to process through things, I think it's just so essential. And, you know, I think, um, you know, certainly I had that crew of people, but I also, I mean, had so many folks that just like we, you kind of have your cohort of people that you're kind of raised through the academy. And, Mm -hmm. you know, those are folks that, you know, you just have these like really meaningful relationships with at these conferences where you can sit and talk and like you're processing ideas and you're thinking through. um, And you're also kind of like talking about family life. Like it isn't just about the work, which I I just, I can't, you know, we can't just be about the work. Um, You know, and so people like, you know, my brother scholars, like, you know, David Perez II and Sam Museus and Nolan Cabrera, like, those are folks that I can, we can critique the system, we can like, uh, excuse me, process, you know, the challenges that we're facing, and then like, joke around, like, you know, it's just, it's just Mm -hmm. a really beautiful way of celebrating each other and not having to deal with this kind of seemingly like competitive nature that the academy tries to force on you um, Mm -hmm. where we're just fighting for crumbs. And I'm like, I'm not doing that, you know? And then, you know, I'm talking about building solidarity, you know, Natasha Krum and I are kind of working on a piece right now to, to talk about that. How do we, you know, think about the intersections of black and Brown women and how do we build solidarity with each other so that um, we can lift each other up? You know, those are things that I think are really critical. And I, I just think it's so essential to to have that. It has transformed into, I want that for everybody, you know? And, you know, I mean, I see that, and, you know, I've talked about, you know, the Chingona scholars that are out there right now, you know, Sarah Rodriguez. And I mean, you know, that, that they're, they're out there doing that for, and trying to gather Latinas to, to talk about their scholarship and to celebrate each other. Um, And, I mean, also, I mean, it's led to the dinner. I mean, the dinner was a big, you know, that I have a Latinx scholar dinner at ASH every year. I've done this 11 years, <laughs> you know. And it, you know, started with like 14 people who could fit into a van in Jacksonville, mm-hmm. Florida. And, you know, we found a place to eat and we were just, it turned into a salsa club and <laughs> we just had a wonderful time and, you know, then, then we started to say, well, let's meet up again, you know, and, and it just started to roll and get more and more people. And it got to the point where I was like, I think I need to sell tickets to this. And now, you know, I, I have a very, like, I have a top secret restaurant. Nobody knows where it's at. Cause I don't want people judging the food and, <laughs> you know, or like trying to crash, um, mm-hmm. you know, like those kinds of things. And, you know, it's been a wonderful, incredible experience. This past year, it got huge. Like we were, we had like 140 people and the restaurant really could not hold us. 
Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it just, I mean, you know, and you live and you learn and you start to realize, okay, what's the intent of this? Like, I yeah, but you, like, but you that. never imagined 140 people. You know what I mean? Like you. No. Yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah. I don't even know. I mean, we probably, maybe we had 140 people, you know, like Latinx identifying folk. Maybe. I don't know. I just feel like we didn't <laughs> at that time. I, I felt like it was a very small crew, even of people of color, minoritized folk at Ash. I, I just didn't feel like it was that big and then it just started to like increase and and for me it was like i just want to allocate one night where you can sit with someone and you don't have to explain all of who you are Mm -hmm. you know i i mean you can talk about your work you can talk about your family people get it you know they get it and i and i want that for people just that one night you can just like decompress a little bit and just celebrate you know and and so it's making me think, well, how, how do I build community um, in a way that, uh, you know, doesn't, isn't this huge, honestly? I've got to figure a way to, like, how do we build community outside of just the dinner? Yeah. Um, because I think folks need that. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, so, and to see so many, like, Black and Latinx um, doctoral students and mm, master yeah. students in that space mm-hmm. and even when I started coming 10 years ago it was not it was not that like it was not that and mm-hmm. it's just so like okay look how we're growing and we're growing in a way that all of these people feel like they're included um mm-hmm. and you're well, a big part of that oh thanks I mean I just think like there are things that still need to happen though you know I do feel like our indigenous scholars are still silenced mm-hmm. in so many ways our Asian scholars, Asian American scholars, you know, aren't, you know, provided the same spotlight, I think, mm-hmm. as black and brown folk. And so like, we've got to find ways to build that, you know, yeah. like. And building across. coalitions. Yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm a fan of you, but I, <laughs> you, you excite me even more um, with the podcast, um, Latinx. <laughs> Intelligentsia, <laughs> uh-huh. um, and thank you for including me as as a guest. Um, but I want to hear about you know what are the what has the, what has been the joys of creating, mm. producing, hosting your own podcast. And I know there's some frustration, some limitations. Shana and I, <laughs> <laughs> there's a reason why there's been a year hiatus. So we want to hear oh some of those gosh. like struggles that you wrestle with. <laughs> to validate right (laughs) yes we all experienced this um well you know i just i mean for me sometimes you know and it's even like i've been interviewing people over winter break and um now coming into the semester and i i just i mean i'm a qualitative researcher and you know i i just i mean that's what you know people are like wow this interview went really very like we were having a conversation i'm like yes this is my training (laughs) at work you know um because I just, I, I enjoy that aspect of it to be able to uncover things that, you know, people haven't shared before or that like we're taking a different angle on something. Um, you know, we just um, launched the, the first episode uh, of the second season and specifically looking at beyond just the designation, the HSI designation. And we've got, you know, Gina Garcia and Andres um, Castro Samayoa, who, you know, really are delving into this. This is their whole research agenda. And they're talking about 
you know, these issues. But then, you know, we also talked about mentoring and we talked about how to work with a research like collaborative um, because I can't seem to get that going very well. Um, and so like I'm learning from them. So that that is just so enriching for me that I'm like, oh, I hope like I'm sure people are going to get so much out of that. Um, you know, the, the part that is hard is I have become a bit of a perfectionist in terms of editing. So yes. it takes me <laughs> so... Dr. Shauna Patterson-Stevens. <laughs> <laughs> a weekend. I, oh my gosh. I just like, it's every breath I have to edit out. Um, mm. Every mm. um, I have to edit out. I have mm. the re repetition, edit out. Like just every, everything that just kind of gets to me because I'm like, I don't, I don't like to hear that when I'm listening to a podcast. So I'm going to try to save the audience from having to hear that. But that takes so much time. Um, and then, so then you're trying to splice together the interviews, your segments, the music. And then I want to hear it one more time in its entirety because I start to realize, ooh, how long is this? Because <laughs> mm -hmm. I do two interviews um, and I try to hit- You do two interviews per episode? Per episode. Okay. Because mm -hmm. a part of it is because I want to give two different perspectives on the same issue. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes it might be like, for example, I'm going to do an episode about self-care and I want to do it from the perspective of a practitioner in contrast to the perspective of a faculty, because I think that that's a very different way of how they manage their self-care, I think looks different. Um, and what a typical day for them looks, you know, so that like, I want to give those different perspectives um, and some have some diversity there. And so yeah, it's like trying to do that, um, you know, and so like I have to listen through the whole thing and double check, is it too long for someone, you know, and then you got to figure out, okay, I got to upload this and, you know, like, I mean, <laughs> people don't, you know, like, and I've had some people say, you know, I really am thinking about doing this. And I'm like, all right, <laughs> yeah, like, yes, you know, we need your voices. And I'm like, and understand that you're going to have to edit and you're going to have to figure out how to get it out into the feeds. And there's this whole back part of it that I just trained myself um, and learned. And now I'm like, okay, I've, I've got to kind of try to outsource some of this. But it's, it's challenging. Yeah. I mean, down to, it bothers me when I hear clothing wrinkling against the microphone. Like <laughs> every little detail. And... I, I, I take out about 80% of my actual cuss words. You know? <laughs> yes, she does. I take a lot of them out. I'm like, oh, I, okay, maybe that wasn't okay. There was, yeah. there was what episode we were recording, Shauna? Like, you could hear nothing but my phone. Or, oh, <laughs> or I took or it so, out. Yeah, we're sitting in the studio on Google Doc um, with the interview questions and the person's calling into the studio. Oh. But you can hear, like, the click clack of the keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god oh no i took it I, out shana took it all out i'm sure it took hours yeah. but yes it takes i mean when, when you hear that like the ding like i'm just like oh my god i can't like yeah yeah and some things you can't help and i'm just like and i you know i've been listening to a lot of people who do podcasting you know and who talk about the the business side of it and you know their conversation is like as long as you sound good Everybody understands is if a guest isn't going to sound good. That's right. For a variety of reasons. But you have to sound good. So I'm like, okay, 
all right, then I'm not going to worry too much about it, but I try to find different software and to help to equalize, to, you know, take out some noises, things like that. Yeah. What's your process for selecting guests? You know, it's interesting. I just, I'm like, Oh, who do I know? (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. you know, I have to say it's, it's a blessing to be in this field because both as a practitioner and as a faculty member, because I'm always, there's always a connection that I have that I'm like, Ooh, you know, I need to talk to this person because I've always admired something about, you know, what, what they're, um, you know, what they do or they're, they're a model of possibility or, you know, I don't know if everybody has talked about this, you know? So I, you know, sometimes I, I bring up these topics that I'm like, Ooh, you know, who do I know? Um, and, uh, I've had a lot of people do recommendations. And so I will vet someone um and say hmm like what what could they offer like what kind of perspective and then who can i match them with that would be a nice like juxtaposition or you know just kind of offer a different perspective so at this point i mean it's just really nice and it's nice that i'm i'm opening it up also to people who not aren't just in academe mm-hmm. um you know and so that's what i'm trying to do also like how can i find students how can i find um you know people who are you know, uh, working in K through 12, like, you know, like those kinds of things. Um, so using my networks, I think is also helpful. Um, well, you also kind of mentioned that, uh, it's interesting to maybe hear perspectives from folks that uh, are faculty members versus folks that are practitioners. And I think a lot of people feel this divide between academic affairs and student affairs. And I was Mm. wondering if you could speak a bit about that and, um, your perspectives on it and maybe some ways we can lessen this gap that people are experiencing. You know, it's interesting. Cause like, I remember when I was at Georgia, there was one time I taught a class about academic and student affairs collaborations. And the, the message was like, we just have to collaborate. I mean, that's, I don't know how, you know, like the messaging, it, it was just, it's like, how much more do we, you know, how can we build these bridges? I think that's something that, that we've talked about often. It's interesting because I'm starting to think about this in a different way. I was, um, I was at a thought leaders summit that was happening um, here at the University of Maryland and um, Bob Reason was there. So shout out to Bob Reason. Hey, Bob. And <laughs> he, <laughs> he was talking about how during his sabbatical, he decided that he was going to do an administrative sabbatical and that actually go and um, work as an administrator in one of the VP's offices and just spend like a semester reminding himself about practice again. And I thought that was very powerful because I think we become very, as faculty, we become very separate from that experience. Um, we study it, you know, I mean, we're on the campus, but I think there, there's something different about day in, day out, being at the front lines working with students. Um, and if you're in a graduate program, I mean, what, how often do you have access to undergrads? It's very challenging um, to try to do that. So I think there are some things that we as faculty can do. And it's, I'm always dismayed when I'm at NASPA and there aren't a lot of faculty and it's interesting to see who shows up 
out of the faculty, not a lot of faculty of color, um, mm. you know, at the, the faculty breakfast, <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, wait a second, I go to Ash and there's a ton, right? But they're all doctoral students, they're all grad students. So it's like, when you start to realize like, oh, these are the faculty who are in these like grad prep programs, you realize that still it's a majority white, uh, you know, um, community. And so it's like, wow, it, it's very striking to me. Um, on the other hand, I think sometimes our practitioners kind of see us as, see faculty as like the enemy, that we're, you know, not, you know, um, that we, well, that we disrespect what they do. And sometimes that's true. I, I mean, not because I, I can see that from uh, faculty across campus, you know, that there's no sense of like respect and, and honoring of that the fact that people are working extensive hours trying to support students who have so many diverse needs. They're being retained because of their out of classroom experiences. And so you know, I, I do see that that can happen as well. But I, I, you know, we've been very fortunate that we have a really strong relationship with the Division of Student Affairs. And, you know, I think it's like, it's a lot of relationship building. It's about getting to know people um, and not being transactional. And I think that that's what ends up happening often is that it becomes this like transactional relationship. So work on tra- transformational relationships rather than transactional relationships because there's so much that can happen you know i mean there's so many ways and i I mean people talk about those like high impact practices which is a faculty and student affairs collaboration you know it's you know those traditional ways of doing it but i also think that there's just has to be a way to talk about you know institutions of higher education are being critiqued a lot now about what is the benefit of college of a college degree and, you know, I, I just, I don't like the argument that it just has to be about um, how much money you're making mm-hmm. when you graduate. I just don't think mm-hmm. that that's the number one thing that we should be worried about as an institution. What we should be thinking about is, are we developing global, you know, participants, people who are going to be engaged in the critical issues of our time? And that is the kind of, that's what I want to assess you know, I don't like, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, I mean, I understand student loan debt because believe me, I'm still paying on mine, but um, I, I just see that there's value, there's worth in these other kinds of developing these change agents. I mean, that's what we need. So, you know, I just, there's got to be ways that we can collaborate together to do that. As someone who kind of sits on both ends, um, mm-hmm. it's very interesting to watch and, um, I'm, I'm always trying to support and encourage folks to uh, build those bridges. And um, it's amazing how, uh, I guess, hesitant some people are because of their past experiences. Well, Cameron, uh, I think we are moving into speed round. Speed Uh-oh. round. We're bringing speed round back for season two. <laughs> I'm going to ask my question. Uh-oh. Okay. Yeah. Here okay. we go. So, Michelle, the rules are. Okay. You have to, you have, we have a, choices you know. here. You can only choose one. First thing that comes to mind. Okay. Oh, good. Here we All go. Right. Here we go. First question. Mm-hmm. J-Lo or Gloria Estefan? J-Lo. Lipstick or nail polish? Lipstick. 
Uh, Ash or ARA? Ash. Podcasting or reading? Ooh, podcasting. (laughs) (laughs) Reading a manuscript or writing a manuscript? Writing. Chair or discussant? Discussant. Chair is the worst. (laughs) (laughs) Especially when people don't show up. (laughs) Well, that's one. And the other one is like, you know, excuse me, you are done. And people say, I I, I know I'm done, but I, I know my time is over. I can't stand that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can add that whole situation to the next time we vent. Oh, huh? yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What's problematic oh. is, right? Yeah. <laughs> Michelle, thank you for your time. Thank you for your energy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love and support. Um, we appreciate you so much. Um, and we hope that you all... We're listening to the gems that she was dropping and you can listen to her. Are you every week now? No, no, no. <laughs> the editing. The yeah, editing. yeah, yeah. Every two weeks. Every yeah. two. That's, mm-hmm. that's a lot too. Every two weeks, Latinx Intelligentsia. Mm-hmm. And it is on, I, what is it? Apple Podcasts, Google Play. Mm-hmm. Stitcher. Spotify, I believe. Yeah. Oh, you Spotify fancy. We, we haven't got to Spotify yet. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Thank and you. I think I did a really good job. I'm just really proud of myself for not completely fangirling today. Oh. oh. <laughs> well, thanks, y'all. I just, I had, I had a wonderful time. Just love Michelle Espino, right? Like, mm-hmm. As, as, as somebody on this grind and, and being able to listen to her and her wisdom of a tenured person of color in the academy that is not has not lost her soul, um, but has um, renewed spirit that she's doing and building community um, and supporting others. Like, I just always get positive energy whenever I'm around her mm-hmm. or with her or get to hear from her. Mm-hmm. I've always appreciated how uplifting she is. I think as you climb. So I think the people might have missed a couple of things. And I know jokes of the week is one. But I think the people have also missed what's problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, what's problematic with tweeting or posting um, or posting on Facebook, um, these dated articles that you think is hot <laughs> and new news. And you didn't check the, the publication date. Ain't check nair date. Damn, read Copy, nothing. Paste, retweet, like. Ah. Y'all see this? What girl? We saw that six years ago, right? Or such and such has died. They died last like decade. Like why? Why? And then people are just like, what? What? And then it takes seven people down to say, oh girl, this is old. Oh. Like, and I think, I think for me, and this is where my social media bubble is, but it could, I could be totally off. To me, it happens more often on Facebook than it does on Twitter. It's because in some ways, Twitter is like kind of instantaneous and like what's on your feed is on your feed. But on Facebook, like my mama friends be posting stuff. Um, people I went to college and high school with. And I'm like, oh, this article is not news, right? Like this is old news. Um, but that's just, it just really gets me, Sean. It just really sends me to a new... Or the news is kind of late, so it's maybe something that I've seen on Instagram or Twitter, and it's just making its way over. 
to Facebook. And I'm like, I don't, I've, I've seen this. I've had this engagement. Like, I don't want to continue to have this, you know, two weeks later. And that's already <laughs> been a part of my, you know, my energy or my atmosphere. It's just annoying. Yeah, I, I think what's been annoying me more as someone who is, I can only really do one. Y'all know I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. But I just use one. But with Facebook, what I don't like is this new feature where um, you are scrolling and people's stuff keeps popping up repeatedly. So, like, I saw your posts already, and I'm like, oh, cool, I like it, and they keep it moving, but then it pops back up for me, like, five posts later. I will say that has been irking me a lot lately, and it makes me not want to scroll at all. Like, What, what do you think is the point of that algorithm? Like, what are they? I think it's connected to that algorithm that they have where the people that you like the most pop up on your timeline the most. Like, I know okay. that's a thing. Yeah. I don't like that either because... Um, I I have selected the friends that I'm friends with on Facebook for a reason. So I would like to hear from all of those people, right? Um, they they keep re-upping the people that they think you're more inclined to respond to. Gotcha. Uh, the other thing is I think our phones are listening to us. Hell yeah. Listen, okay. I was at a retreat um, with the leadership team at my position, in my uh, job, and my supervisor pulled out this deck of cards and it was a mindfulness deck. And, you know, everybody picks a card and you're answering questions. And I thought it was really cool. So I was like, oh, where'd you get these? I'd like to try this with my staff. Um, and she was like um, explaining all the different types of cards that she has and where she's found them. And I promise, I swear to God, I didn't Google it. I was getting advertisements for these damn cards. Uh, for the next three days after that retreat. And I was like, it!" you know, I, I can't. This is another reason why I leave my phone upstairs when I'm downstairs. Like, I, I can't have you all up in my conversation. It makes me paranoid. They know. Don't be telling me what I want to buy on Amazon because you heard me talking to my sister. Mm-hmm. I don't like you that. know, I won't buy an Alexa and I won't buy any of those things that people are putting in their houses. But I think, you know, I'm dumb anyway. It doesn't matter because I still have smart TVs, right? And now they come with the capacity already built into them. And they're trying to encourage me to activate like Alexa in my TV. Um, And I'm like, okay, so I know it's an option now. I feel like you're using it regardless, you know, just because my TV is plugged into the wall. So I'm still being a dum-dum because I got these smart TVs all in my house. Like it doesn't matter. Well, yeah, I I don't know how we escape it, right? Like I I know like we try to be mindful. but I don't know, I don't know how we escape it. Cause like our laptops, right? Like when we open certain apps or or whatever the case may be. And I also what is what is scariest to me, um, and this goes back to it's not that I have a problem with social media, it's just I don't feel like I need to tell everybody everything at all times. I'm a private person. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that people value privacy like they used to or understand the importance of privacy. Um, and that's what concerns me the most out of all of this, right? Like, I, I would think that folks should be up in an uproar because of these things happening around them. And they're, they're kind of laughing it off like, oh, ha, I got this, this suggestion to buy a banana slicer. <laughs> they just delete it and keep it going. I'm like, uh, no, sis, they, they need not know that you were eating a banana this morning. <sighs> Stop reposting. Check the date. That's what's problematic this week. So are you ready for some jokes? <laughs> um, I know the people are ready. Let me stop crying. You know I miss your, <laughs> you know I miss your little joke. <laughs> All right. I want to make sure you can see my face. I got to see yours too. 
You ready? <laughs> Give it to me. Today, my son asked, can I have a bookmark? And I burst into tears. 11 years old, and he still doesn't know my name is Brian. <laughs> my wife is really bad at the fact that I have no sense of direction. So I packed up my stuff and write. <laughs> if a child refuses to sleep during nap time, are they guilty of resisting arrest? I don't know if I should laugh at that one, but it's clever. I thought it it connected to what we've been talking about today. Right. Uh, Okay. My friend keeps saying, cheer up, man. It could be worse. You could be stuck underground in a hole full of water. I know he means well. I think I've heard that one. (laughs) I haven't. <laughs> I ordered a chicken and egg from Amazon. I'll let you know. Which one comes first? The chicken, the egg. <laughs> I'll let you know which one comes first. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, leave me alone. I thought they were funny. I hope y'all did too. Um, <laughs> Somebody driving home, cracking up. <laughs> <laughs> Our little secret formula. Love uh, it. Miss those jokes. I know. I got more serious note. I do think we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge the tremendous losses we've experienced as of late within our community. Uh, in addition to the loss of Elijah Cummings this past October, we learned today that Kobe Bryant and his daughter Gianna passed away. Uh, we don't center these losses above others. We just simply wish to recognize the jarring nature of loss and how it can ripple under the surface of our everyday lives. Our thoughts are with you as you tangle with losses more immediate to you. We hold you as you as we we hold you as we collect ourselves, and we ask for the healing of wounds over time. Yeah, it hit me hard, um, and I'm I'm just still processing, you know. Yeah, I went to um, went to church this morning. What a, a key part of the message was, you know, sometimes not understanding, you know, why things happen and and what God's purpose is, um, and understanding that God is still working even in devastating times. Um, mm. And I don't know why that was the message today, but then I, I know why that was the message today. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of what I've been holding, I've been holding on to. Um, I was at the women's basketball game, I was, and I just like I feel like I just had to leave. Like it was just, it was a lot. It was a lot. Yeah, yeah. I've just, I've just been quiet, like quietly processing it. Well, we are each other's harvest. We are each other's business. We are each other's magnitude and bond, according to Gwendolyn Brooks. Imagine how powerful we could be in a nation full of doubt and unrest if we each made it our business to take care of one another, if we allowed our our egos to burn away and moved in the best interest of our collective bond rather than selfishness. We would not be required to remain in a constant mode of self-preservation if we could allow ourselves to be entangled in love. Let's try to find ways to actively remain each other's harvest 
sowing care and beginning love. Love it. Love you, friend. Love you too. I'm so glad that I get to spend more time with you. That well, is this week's episode of Scholar Tea. Bye. Take